LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, Elon Musk, Twitter, and the future of social media. On January 31st, Elon Musk, already the CEO of four companies, started buying shares in a fifth, Twitter. Within two months, the world's richest man snapped up more than 5% of the social media platform. Emboldened, perhaps, by his growing ownership stake, he began voicing his concerns about Twitter on, where else? Twitter. On March 24th, he tweeted, worried about de facto bias in the Twitter algorithm having a major effect on public. The next day, he queried his followers, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? And the day after that, he wondered aloud, is a new platform needed? On April 14th, he came up with a surprising answer to that question. The world didn't need a new platform. Twitter needed a new owner. So, Elon, um, a few hours ago, you made an offer to buy Twitter. Why? That's Chris Anderson speaking with Musk at the TED conference in Vancouver. How'd you know? (laughs) Little bird tweeted in my ear or something. I don't know. By the way, have you seen the movie TED about the bear? I I I have. I have. Good movie. (laughs) Don't mention that here. (laughs) Um, Was there a question? (laughs) Why 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 make that offer? Oh, so. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, so, uh, yeah. Um. The news earlier this week that Twitter accepted Musk's $44 billion offer has got the chattering class into a tizzy. For all of his success and fame, Musk is still something of an enigmatic character and a polarizing one. As we discussed with Harvard historian Jill Lepore back in February, his public persona, and perhaps his private one, has melded over time with that of Tony Stark, Iron Man, impossibly wealthy and brilliant and innovative and more than a little bit mischievous. Nowhere has Musk's rash, impish nature been on better display than on Twitter, where he has more than 85 million followers and has tweeted more than 17,000 times. Now. Twitter is not an especially popular platform as far as social media goes. It has 217 million monthly users. That may seem like a lot, but to put it in perspective, Instagram has 2 billion. Even Pinterest has twice the users that Twitter does. But despite its relatively small fan base, Twitter has become an ever more newsworthy platform in recent years. That's largely thanks to the way it functioned as a kind of weaponized bully pulpit for Donald Trump. The decision to ban Trump from Twitter was astonishingly effective in hindsight. He wasn't much for press briefings, so the Twitter ban effectively muzzled him, a sitting president. Anyway, it's no surprise that the acquisition of one of our most important platforms for social discourse by the contrarian superhero-inspired richest man in the world has captivated the attention of everyone who's in media and everyone who's interested in media. Yet another layer of intrigue is Musk's own controversial history on Twitter. 
He once posted a photo of Bill Gates with the caption, in case you need to lose a boner fast. He compared Justin Trudeau to Hitler. He called the coronavirus panic, quote, dumb. And oh, he used Twitter to commit securities fraud. No wonder he wants to introduce an edit button. Add all that to the picture, and of course, no one is going to be able to stop talking about this deal, some expressing grave concern, some cautious optimism, and others sheer dumbfoundedness. In light of this frothy public conversation, we decided to do something different this week. We are interrupting our regularly scheduled programming to bring you special coverage of this tantalizing story, and we are inviting not one guest, but two. One of those guests is someone regular listeners have heard from before, my old friend, Stephen Johnson. Stephen sprung to mind immediately because he's been writing about emerging networks and the impact of technology on society for 25 years. He's published more than a dozen books, including Interface Culture, How New Technology Transforms the Way We Create and Communicate, Everything Bad is Good for You, about the sometimes positive impact of video games and media on cognition, and How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World. Our other guest, Eli Pariser, got his start as the executive director of MoveOn.org at the tender age of 24. He went on to co-found Upworthy, a website for meaningful viral content, and to write the best-selling book, The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You. His latest jam, as he calls it, is an organization called New Public, which is working with designers and technologists to reimagine the internet as a public space. Those of you who listened to my conversation with Jill Lepore will know that though I'm sympathetic to criticism of Elon Musk, the guy can be reckless and puerile and a menace in his worst moments, I fundamentally like him. I can't help it. I'm inspired by the youthful idealism that drives him, or seems to. I, for one, really do think he's hell-bent on accelerating our path to energy sustainability. And it's reasonable to argue that he's done more than any other individual on the planet to make it happen. My two cents, he actually wants to make Twitter better too. Though I will allow that his definition of a better Twitter may be motivated by self-interest. I make an effort to counter my Musk sympathies by soliciting the opinions of friends who disagree, which you'll hear in the conversation that follows. We also get into broader questions, which I would argue are more important than who owns Twitter. Should anyone own the town square? Should your identity, currently hosted on sites like Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, be the property of a private company? Who should control the social graph, the web of connections linking you with the people and things you engage with online? And how can we build better platforms that support our needs as individuals and foster the kind of healthy debate necessary for a vigorous democracy? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Stephen Johnson, Eli Pariser, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks, Rufus. Thanks for having us on. Let's open with a tweet from Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey this morning. He said, in principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving for the problem of it being a company, however, Elon is the singular solution I trust. 
which I find interesting because Dorsey seems to be saying two things. First, at this moment in history, Twitter needs to be a traditional company. It can't be a public utility or something else. And second, he considers Musk to be the very best available owner. Eli, I know from your tweets that you don't agree with Dorsey on this. What's what's your take? I mean, I think I have a number of of objections, which which don't really get at like who would the ideal owner of Twitter, the company, be? Like, I think that's sort of I, I don't have like a an awesome answer to that question. But a, I just sort of feel like wealthiest person in the world buys major communications platform is like in itself reason for one or both eyebrows to be raised. I think B, wealthiest person in the world, who is also a super user, who is also kind of an edge lord, uh, like chaos god trickster monkey, like uh, <laughs> buys communication service as like a whole other level. And then I think when you add in what he claims his agenda is, which is a set of really like sort of facile and unworkable talking points about free speech. Like the whole thing I, I find kind of gross and, but, but maybe gross in like this really productive and provocative way. So that's my uh, unvarnished <laughs> reaction. And, and, you, and you said his stated reasons for buying Twitter are contradictory. Y- yeah, no, I mean, uh, and and let me actually say, like, it, it sounds like I personally dislike him and I find him kind of uh, annoying and obnoxious in a lot of ways. But I also have a lot of respect for, like, I think you get lots of points for helping electrify the car industry. And I'm willing to tolerate a fair amount of, like, jackassness if that's what you're actually doing for the world. But, you know, he says that he wants to... um He's not going to run it for profit, but he's also going to supercharge profitability, the business model. That's like the most obvious one. And then, you know, I just think talking on one hand about sort of authentication and subscription tiers, and on the other hand about absolute right to free speech, those things actually are not at all consistent with each other. And, uh, you know, there we'd have a big argument about pseudonyms or not pseudonyms, but pseudonymity is a part of being able to speak freely for a reason, you know, and people have always used it as a tool, especially when they're trying to deal with more powerful people who might take revenge on them saying things. And so I I just think there's a lot of complexity and self-contradictoriness under what he says his agenda is. Stephen, of all my friends, you've been on Twitter the longest, perhaps you've been you've been the most consistent user of Twitter. And and you've also, you know, taken an interest in Elon Musk over the years. What what what's your take? You know, Twitter is this amazing. I can't think of another company that has been such utter chaos in terms of the, <laughs> the management of it. And I say that knowing some of the, I don't know Elon Musk at all, but I know some of the Twitter founders and I think they would admit it has been for the very beginning an incredibly tumultuous company and that has somehow nonetheless managed to create a product that I use every day and have gotten a ton out of for all of its flaws. I still think it's, 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 it is the social network that I ha- have been drawn to the most and that I have found the most you know, inspiring and delightful and, and, and intellectually engaging. Um, so that they were, that they've always had this 
chaos monkey kind of culture in a way. <laughs> so there's something kind of fitting in having Elon at the end of that process, I suppose. But it does concern me. I'm not happy about it. I, I, I was hoping it was just going to blow over. And I'll, I'll second what Eli said there about Musk. Like, I'm, I'm not a, you know, a default Musk hater. He he obviously has some annoying things, but I, I think the one thing that isn't said enough about him is, and and this is an interesting thing, just in terms of the history of capitalism, that no one in the history of capitalism has ever become the richest person in the world by making a product that was fundamentally about, you know, preventing existential risk um, or you know dealing with existential risk for us as a species, right? And the, the, we've never rewarded that in the past. Generally, the people who became the wealthiest people in the world were actually creating more risk in the world. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's, you know, I think he has been all in a net positive for the for the world for sure. I think that's that's very hard to argue against um, with Tesla particularly. But you know, I mean, he, he was interviewed on the stage um, at TED uh, last week or the week before. Chris Anderson did an interview with him, and I thought it was just really unimpressive. You know, I mean, echoing what Eli was saying, you know, he kind of comes out and says, you know, Twitter is the the town square. It is the public, you know, for the world. This is the, the town square. And to not even raise the issue of like, thus, why would we want to have the richest person in the world own the town square? Like he should have an answer for that. Right. But it didn't it didn't even seem to be an issue. Like he was just like, so thus it's incredibly important for the world. And that's why I'm going to purchase it. Right. Like that was just a logical, you know, next step. Um, he did not seem to have thought out any of the complexities. I mean, Eli's just scratching the surface here of so many, you know, it's thorny. Once you get into the question of like what people should be allowed to say and how the algorithm should work and all these different things. I think his whole ethos has always been about, you know, in an inspiring way about, you know, getting to first principles, right? Like it's always about like, mm -hmm. just go back to the physics of it and we'll be able to solve this problem. And that really is a great thing to do if you are making rockets. <laughs> it, it is it is just not an appropriate framework to use when you're trying to make a town square. And, and I think he's just going to run up against a, a lot of issues that he just hasn't thought through. And we're going to be stuck now with... Two companies. For, for the last 10 years, I've been saying it's crazy that Facebook, which is as big as the in the entire web was in 2000, is owned by effectively one person. One person owns 50 percent of the controlling shares in, in, in Facebook. Yeah. And now we're going to have we're going to have another company <laughs> where maybe one guy owns all the shares. I don't even know how the, the, the deal yeah. structure is going to be yeah. set up, but it's just not it's not a good position to be in, I think. Well, and, and if I could just add on that, like. The thing I think people don't talk about enough uh, until it happens is like the, the incredible fragility of these kinds of constructs. God forbid Elon gets hit by a bus tomorrow. Then what? The Musk estate owns Twitter. And what happens then? You know, so Grimes, Grimes, owns Grimes Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, look at uh, Viacom and sort of Sumner Redstone and all of the like crazy machinations that happen around when you have one really powerful person who has control of a huge empire. Yeah. Like, like I think, yeah. I think we've actually like in digital world gotten off pretty easy on this front relative to the risk that we have, as you say, Stephen, with like the, the amount of concentration of power. 
I can already tell that I'm going to be the Musk apologist slash advocate of this conversation. So somebody, somebody <laughs> has to be. Somebody has to be. So I'll be that guy. The the um, how, you know how about the argument though that he he claims anyway that he do, he's not going into this with a profit motive, and that uh, I'm interested to hear what you all think about that. But that strikes me as probably plausible. How about the argument that when you look at all the different possible owners of uh, of a Twitter, right? That the profit motive exists for most boards. It's their job to make profits. The the only entities that can actually, in this moment in history, actually run institutions without a profit motive are wealthy individuals. You think of, I think of like the Salzburgers with the New York Times, who are content not to make a massive profit for years. I mean, is there an argument that sometimes having wealthy individuals without a profit motive is perhaps the best among unattractive options? I do think that that is an interesting side of it. I doubt, you know, there have been some speculations about you know, what he will have to do to make this a profitable deal as if it was, you know, a traditional like, you know, leveraged buyout of a newspaper chain or something like that. And, and I, I, I do take him at his word. I think it seems plausible that he actually is not doing this for the money, that it turns out that if you have 200 other billion dollars, <laughs> it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. So. I suppose it's fine, but I just didn't. I don't know. It. It. Um. I would have been much happier if Twitter just stayed the way it was. I mean, I. I you know, it was. It was not a huge success as a business, but it was somewhat functional, and it had made some improvements, and the product was starting to make some actual improvements in the last year or two. So this just introduces a huge amount of uncertainty and he is so mercurial as it is in his chaos monkey kind of mode. And also, I mean, the, the other the other thing is like Tesla is an important company. I, I suppose SpaceX is an important company. You know, Neuralink could be an important company. Uh, you know, like the question I wanted to ask him on the, on the TED stage was like the first question was, do you feel like you do not have enough on your plate? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you sitting around me like, oh, man, you know, it's five o'clock and I, I maybe... Maybe he feels that Tesla and SpaceX are now kind of stable, and certainly they are more so than they were three or four years ago, and he can he can take on a new insurmountable problem. But I feel like, you know, I would like him to be focused on the things that I actually think he's pretty well qualified to excel at yeah. rather than yeah. something that I actually think he's constitutionally not suited to to excel at. Yeah. And I, I, I think there's a fallacy that's a common fallacy with people like him, which is like that... Uh, you can transfer competence across these kinds of domains. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because it's a company and you're good at running one kind of company, you're good at running another kind of company. But this is like, this is all, this isn't about physics. It's about sociology. (laughs) And like, that's a totally different ballgame with way different dynamics. So that's one piece. But then I think the other piece is just like, say what you like about the dude, but like, he is pretty distractible. And so a question is kind of like, if he can't just wave a wand and in a year make Twitter great again, how long is he going to stick with it through a whole bunch of really complicated decisions, people being mad at him? And meanwhile, there's Neuralink taking off or whatever. Like, I have zero faith that, you know, like why if Mark Zuckerberg could wave a wand and be rid of the responsibility of the Facebook blue app and just get to play around in like fun <laughs> AR, VR, VR, yeah, he would, I believe in a second, like drop it and run 
for the hell. Like, like that's not what he wants to be. And I just like, I don't even know if, if Musk knows what he's buying here really, but I think we'll all find out. Very quickly. I would just add to that, which is that I'm not convinced this is a done deal. He he is so easily distracted that there is going to be this period of this closing. And I can see, I mean, Tesla stock was way down today. Maybe there's some regulatory pushback. Probably yeah. not. But the shareholder base has to vote it. You know, like there's a lot of there are some hurdles left. And this is a guy who's not, you know, who is easily distracted. And I could see maybe a month from now that he's just like, ah, forget it. <laughs> and then, then we'll, This whole conversation will have been a waste of our time. <laughs> right. But, but well, but presumably he would hire a CEO. Right. I mean, he's, he hasn't suggested that he's going to actually run. Yeah. It, right. I mean, I assume. I mean, that's that's, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I I'm fascinated by the question of Musk's motivations. And I think a lot of people are. It's challenging for all of us to take at face value his idealism, right? When you hear him talk about what motivates him in his various businesses, if you take it at face value, he's 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 one of the most idealistic CEOs and leaders on the planet. Uh, we have a clip here from a conversation he had with uh, Chris Anderson on the TED podcast. SpaceX, Tesla, Neuralink, and Boring Company are philanthropy. If you say philanthropy is love of humanity, Tesla is accelerating sustainable energy. This is a love of, of full anthropy. I really want to make sure that there is a good future for humanity and that we're on a path to understanding the nature of the universe. The thing I always love that he, he talks about is that his mission is to preserve... <laughs> I can't say it without laughing. His, his mission is to preserve the light of consciousness, which I always just think is like, you know, when he wakes up in the morning and it's <laughs> like, what are you doing today, Elon? Oh, I'm going to just preserve the light of consciousness <laughs> yeah. a little bit. And then it's like, tweet, Bill Gates is a boner killer. It's like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is an expression of consciousness. He might argue. Um, uh, yeah, well, well, I think he goes out, he says, extend the light of consciousness to the stars. And actually, in Jack Dorsey's tweet this morning, he ended it with saying that he believed in, in Musk's mission to extend the light of consciousness to the stars, which was a full, I'm drinking the Kool Aid statement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it, like, Twitter is not that problem like that i it is actually true on some level the spacex is actually trying to do that tesla is indirectly trying to do that by trying to avoid you know climate catastrophe twitter is is really important but it's about trying to figure out how to work together as a society how to share our political viewpoints how to surface interesting information how to make new friends or have public debates about things and that is, this just requires a different skill set. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we look beyond Musk, beyond Twitter, and ask, can we build a better version of social media? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast, 
Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. This is a question that I've had, which is, is Twitter the town square, right? I, I mean, Musk has effectively said that this is, you know, free speech is the foundation of a strong democracy and Twitter is the place where it's happening effectively, right? Is this, is, do you all believe that's true? I don't. It is town square-like in some respects, but number one, it's actually like re- relative to Facebook or a lot of other social applications, like it's small and it's like driven by sort of media elites and political elites, but it's not nearly as part of people's lives as like some of the other platforms that are are coming up. Second, I don't mean to be too literal, but it's like a town square is a space that a particular community uses to like see each other come together. Sometimes you have political arguments there, but that's not actually the primary purpose of the town square in any town that I'm aware of. You know, so so I feel like the metaphor sort of breaks down in a bunch of ways that are important, but I think it also points toward what. So 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 my the the, the point of view, the take I'm trying on with all of this is like, I, I think this may be the beginning of the end of kind of big social, and I think that may be a really good thing. And the way that argument works is like Elon takes it on. He can't actually hold together the coalition that kind of makes makes Twitter work now. There was sort of this brief moment where you could kind of get Trump and the media class into the same digital space. But Elon, for a whole bunch of reasons, may not have the kind of like political acumen to kind of hold that together. Meanwhile, whereas it used to be technically really hard to build a global communications medium, that's getting like exponentially easier to the point where, you know, no code solutions for a lot of the things that Twitter does are getting to a point where that's viable. So all of a sudden, like the technical mode around building a big social net- network is changing. And yeah, I can't bring my whole social graph everywhere, but I can bring all the people I really want through my group chats or whatever, wherever I really want them to go. And so it just feels like we're maybe like, going to look back on this as kind of like the end of this era where we thought we could do where where we thought it was a good idea even to build like sort of one size fits all global digital platforms and the beginning of something that's much more fragmented pluralistic human scale with some big benefits to that and also some really scary like ISIS and you know homegrown terrorist city states happening um much more, much more vividly. It's interesting to hear you say that because to me that proposes a, a world where filter bubbles would be more common, right? You would yeah. be like, oh, now I can finally form my social network. You know, it's like what Truth Social is trying to do, Trump's social network. It's like finally a social network where conservatives can actually just hang out with other conservatives. And it turns out they don't really like to hang out with other conservatives because they like to yell at the libs. Isn't, yeah. isn't that the concern? No, I feel that I feel that you know, I feel that tension. I think what I'm coming to feel like is number 1, the premise that I just do think the premise that you can get 
3 billion people globally into the same space and have it work for everyone or most people is just like hilariously wrong on its face. And we will increasingly look back on it as hilariously wrong. Like, I just don't, it's not to say that you can't have global connectivity in some ways, but the idea that that's all going to happen in one place that looks the same mm-hmm. everywhere and works yeah. the same everywhere. I don't know. I just think that's like, I have trouble believing that's the end of history for social media. And so then, you know, I think, well, okay, if we go to this more, fe- you know, more, more disaggregated model, but we want to preserve some areas of cross connection and cohesion, then you can start to think about other ways of doing that. You can start to think about interoperability and cr- and federation and you can think about building spaces intentionally, and this is my whole jam now, of like where that cross connection happens. Like you could say, we ne- we need parks and we need libraries, and we're going to build those as their own little overlapping bubbles in this very bubbly world. And those will be places where we try to design for sort of healthy cross connection. But one of the things that I always had a trouble with with Twitter as like a town square as a metaphor is it's like somehow people transmute town square into like yelling at strangers about political beliefs, which is just not pleasant for anyone ever anywhere. Like that's not something people do much in offline life for a reason too. And I just think that's like a weird mismetaphor that we have about this stuff that like, oh, that would be a good idea if I like walk up to someone I totally don't know and harass them about, you know, abortion or whatever. Stephen, this is a this is an argument that you made many years ago, right? You had a wonderful piece about Bitcoin and blockchain in the New York Times Magazine some years back, and Stephen's been making the case for years that we made a decision early on in the early development of the internet to have these open protocols, POP and SMTP and so on, that made email something that was has been largely free and largely ad free for most users, and nobody has made a vast fortunes on email. But we did not choose to do that with the social graph. And we could have, and, and perhaps the implication is we can, uh, we, we could do that in the future. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing to think about how long email has lasted. Fundamentally, uh, you know, unchanged in terms of the underlying protocols. We built, you know, wonderful email clients on top of it. Like Gmail is way better than the old mail clients I had in 1990. But the underlying architecture really hasn't changed that much. And we really, it, you know, it, I think it's, I think it really dates to the to the web and that Berners-Lee built a web around, a, in a sense, a kind of a, a literary metaphor of pages and documents and links. And it, he didn't have identity built into that kind of model. And so the private sector kind of swooped in because it made sense to have some kind of, you know, permanent structured identity in your communications with the outside world. And so we got these private social graphs, as they're called, social networks, that are, you know, controlled by small numbers of people and giant corporations. And so the question is, and this is, this is you know, something Eli was kind of touching on, Musk made a couple of references, has made a couple of references to this idea that they're going to open source the algorithm. Now, and he was like, well, we're going to put it on GitHub, you know, and I take that to mean that like the algorithm of like what it recommends to you is going to be open source so that we can understand what it's, it's not going to be in a black box, which is that would be good. In general, Twitter actually, you know, is, has a, historically had a much less heavy hand than Facebook in its algorithm and the way that it recommends things. A lot of people, me included, just read it as a straight reverse chronological feed, but it would be good to have more you know, exposure there. 
I wasn't sure whether maybe he was also implying that they were going to somehow try and open source the the social graph itself. Mm. And so that, you know, there's a there's a project associated with Twitter called Blue Sky that is trying to build a kind of decentralized version of Twitter in parallel with Twitter itself. And so if Elon's acquisition, this here's my one optimistic case, Mm. is that somehow Elon's acquisition leads him down a path where he comes to the conclusion that it is it is in the best interests of humanity and preserving the light of humanity that an open source social graph becomes available to humanity. And the best place to start that is basing it on Twitter's existing graph. So you start with something and that enables other people to come along and build other applications on top of those connections so that you don't have to reinvent your social connections every time you want to switch from one platform to the other. If that's where we end up in two years, then, I, then I'll come back on the show and say, I was wrong. This was a good thing. Because I think that that's, that's what we have to figure out how to do somehow. And, and there are people who argue that the blockchain is the right way to do this. I, I, I presented that argument in that piece four years ago. It hasn't been done yet. I'm not sure necessarily why you need the blockchain to do it. Someone could just decide to do it with traditional approaches. Um, but I think that is, that's what we should be aiming for. And it's kind of fixing this fundamental flaw in the design of our information architecture that we've been sitting on for 30 years. Now, Eli, this is in your sweet spot because you're you're uh, you're building a new organization called New Public, which you say is like urban planning, but for the Internet. Does this play a part in, in, in your thinking? Yeah. I mean, what, what we're trying to do is build nonprofit driven digital spaces that are like parks or libraries or other civic institutions in digital life and are built around that set of values and purpose. So when you look at the difference between in the physical world, businesses and public service organizations, like they they really are, are different in terms of who they're aiming to serve, how they structure themselves and the model. And I think we just, there's no community on earth that does very well with, with purely private institutions for a reason. And that's probably true in digital life too. And so right now we're starting with like kind of around existing institutions. So think about schools and think about libraries and think about local governments, that there's kind of like this possibility for digital sociality that we haven't really realized because we've only been investing in a kind of venture funded and venture scale way in those spaces. But I just want to, I want to go back to the Twitter open sourcing its graph, which I'm really interested in that project. I think there's something great there. But I do, I do think uh, one of the other sort of category mistakes that we make when we think about this stuff is imagining that there is a social graph that is like the social graph. Like, I think that's like a, a mistake because actually like, you know, different, different people are salient to me in different ways in different places. And I don't want to have the same level of salient. You know, it's like, I kind of, if I'm at a nightclub, I would prefer not to know that my colleagues are there. <laughs> like, right. you know what I mean? Like, I do not want to advertise my, my, you know, whatever. Like, and so. Are you, are you still going to nightclubs? Uh, oh, I haven't been to a nightclub in like 10 years. <laughs> a, this is just a fantasy. It was a, it was a hypothetical. <laughs> Theoretically, a, if I were to a, go to a nightclub. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I don't. I wish I had some alter ego life uh, as a nightclub promoter. But um, the local character that emerges in particular, oh, here's a discord and there's kind of the familiar strangers and there's like the particular people who kind of are there. And then there's some people I'm connected to elsewhere. That's actually like a really valuable 
trait of a space that I wouldn't I wouldn't trade away just like taking my posse wherever I go. I think you're absolutely right. That's an important distinction. You don't want just one homogeneous kind of spread of people, but there are probably ways to do it. You know, I know we only have a few more minutes, but but to, to finish up, I mean, I'm interested in what the next platform will be, or maybe this is what, what Twitter evolves into in your scenario, Stephen. But, you know, we all saw like Friendster replaced by MySpace, replaced by Facebook. We've seen, you know, Instagram emerge out of nowhere to become this colossal phenomenon. We've seen TikTok in the last several years emerge. We know how quickly these new platforms can emerge. When we think about the kind of structure and the kind of ownership that we'd like to see, you know, I, I think of two models. One is sort of the, the Craigslist model where Craig Newmark was like, I'm going to take this $50 billion, you know, uh, classifieds business and turn it into just a hundred, one that's only generates a few hundred million in revenue. And I'm just going to make it mostly free. And it's really hard to compete with free. And that's, so we do have these cases, right, where people can basically decide to have a much more mission driven approach and not optimize for profit. And conceivably, that's something that could be done by a sort of wealthy benefactor owner. Then we have the Wikipedia model of like a .org, like total nonprofit. And then we have all this exciting talk about decentralized autonomous organizations that might build a structure where the users can can actually, through using the service, own it. I mean, do you guys see these, these scenarios as maybe undergirding a future kind of better social network? Yeah, I, I personally, so, so I, I, I don't know what to make of where DAOs will go. Like, I think it's a super interesting scene. Will it always have anything to do with blockchain? I could totally imagine a world where it doesn't, but it continues to be playing with these new ideas about governance and ownership. Um, I'll, I'll go on record and maybe I'll be horribly wrong and I'll come back in two years. But like, I do wonder if we like don't even really know where to look for the next thing because we're thinking in terms of massive tech platforms like TikTok, like Twitter, but actually like what's going to happen next is sort of very horizontal and driven as much by culture as by tech, like that we've gotten to a place where like the tech is no longer as determinative and the culture starts to be the driving factor, but it's all kind of small. And so it's like hard to see the way that we're looking for it because it's like not the kind of thing that we're looking for. That's my kind of guess about where things are are headed because I think people just like feel so manipulated by powerless and grossed out by a bunch of these bigger spaces. And so, and meanwhile, it's like so accessible now to like, we could just pop into a Zoom or I've never used this app that we're recording the podcast on, but here we are having a conversation. Like it's a new social medium, you know, so... I feel like that's that's my hunch about where things might be headed. You know, we should also remind ourselves, I'm glad you brought up Wikipedia. We have this thing we can point to and just say, this is amazing. It just works. It's an yeah. incredible resource that just did not exist 30 years ago. And most of us, even the true believers like me who've been fighting for these things for a long time, like would have said in 1995, if you said, hey, there's going to be this, you know, user-authored encyclopedia that no one's going to own and that's going to be way more accurate than the Britannica, I would have said, that's ridiculous. That'll never happen. That's just a pipe dream. But it that, it exists and it's, and it's this extraordinary thing. And so, you know, I hope that we can figure out a way to double down on that tradition in, in the way that we explore social networks going forward and try and figure out what we did well there 
mm-hmm. and, and how to make more of that in the world. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you, Stephen Johnson and Eli Pariser for joining us on the Next Big Idea podcast. I hope Elon Musk was listening because we had some great, great, uh, great ideas there. Except for all the mean things that we said about him. But besides that, it was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a great conversation. Thanks yeah, but for, those were mostly said by you two. You know, I was a little more <laughs> apologist. So, you know, you're, you're, you're cut out of the next Tesla release, Stephen. Apparently so. Thanks for having us on. Eli Pariser is the co-director of New Public and the author of The Filter Bubble. Stephen Johnson's latest book is Extra Life, and he also writes a newsletter called Adjacent Possible. You can find a link in the episode notes. I encourage you to follow them both on Twitter. Now, before we get to the credits, I want to give you a quick update on what's going on here at the Next Big Idea Club. We thought this might be fun for all. And to help me do that, I'm joined by my producer and the club's senior director of audio, Caleb Bissinger. Hey, Caleb. Hey, Rufus. So, Caleb, why don't you kick this off by telling us what's going on in Audioland? Yeah. So, life in Audioland for the past few days has been dominated by, first, this question of whether we should break format and do a special episode about Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. And spoiler alert, we did. And we then, did. <laughs> And then it's kind of also been dominated by this follow-up question of, Should we do more things like that? Should we occasionally step away from doing a long-form interview with an author about a new book and engage with smart thinkers on a current events subject? Yeah, I I enjoyed this one. It's a new new challenge navigating multiple guests, but I, I thought it turned out pretty darn well. We'd love to know what people think. Absolutely. So if you're listening to this, we want your unvarnished opinions. Our email address is podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. You know, did you like the format? Would you like it if we brought old guests back for new conversations? Tell us what you think. Or should we leave current events to Michael Barbaro and stick with books? We love yeah. books. Should we stick to our knitting? You know, let us know. You know, don't, don't, don't pull punches. Yeah, we don't need it. You know, maybe we should be rocking the boat. Anyway, yeah. So aside from that, um, I'm I'm busy cutting next week's episode, which is a great interview with science journalist Catherine Price about her book, The Power of Fun. I, I know you enjoyed that conversation, Rufus. I really enjoyed that conversation. I can't wait to share it with everybody. Listeners will get to hear about my sartorial recklessness, my funky jackets and shirts, love of pickleball, and passion for publicly embarrassing my children. And my most recent acquisition of several brightly colored baseball caps with propellers on top. I have one, Caleb, for you. Thank you. You know, Elon Musk just bought Twitter and you just bought a couple of baseball caps. <laughs> well, we all we all work within our means. You know? <laughs> um, I, think I, I think we're going to have more fun with the baseball caps. We're also hard at work on a new project that listeners will be hearing a lot about in the coming weeks. We're going to be releasing a series of one to three hour original audiobooks, brand new material with some of our very favorite nonfiction writers, including Stephen Johnson, Nir Eyal, the authors of Humor Seriously, Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdanis. This is a pretty big deal. These are totally original new audiobooks from some of the world's great thinkers. Yeah, these are going to be amazing, Rufus. Anyway, look, I'm going to jump. I got to get back to cutting the Catherine Price interview, but uh, we will catch up again on next week's episode. If you like this show, please tell your social graph. You can also leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get the word out. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kavnat. Sound designed by Mike Toda. 
Twitter may be in the news right now, but LinkedIn is our favorite social media platform and not just because they help us make this podcast. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.